You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is May 4th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. May the 4th be with you. And Dang also it. with you, Always, <laughs> always. No. And also with you is, is Catholic, Jay. For Jedi, you say, may the force be with you always. May the force <gasps> be with you always. <laughs> yes. May the 4th. May the 4th is not only Star Wars Day. It is the anniversary of the first SGU episode. Ever. May 4th, right. 2005. This is our 11-year anniversary. Crap. We're, Holy we are crap, old. you guys. That's or as, has the time as Evan said, 11s. You, <laughs> you guys started <laughs> one year after I graduated from college. That's wow. awesome. That's crazy. I tell Could you. you imagine, though, guys? I mean, seriously, 11 years. Like, talk about our lives being very different and uh, and what a ride we've been on since the show started. Yeah, it's been it's been awesome. You guys want to hear some stats? Yep. Yeah. Sure. All-time downloads. How many times has the SGU been downloaded in 11 years? 78. <laughs> 71. 70 million. 70 million. Wow. We're getting about a million downloads a month now. Each of our most recent episodes is peaking at about 155,000. So that's about how many listeners we have per episode. And if you break it down by country, guess what percentage of our listeners are in the United States? 70%. 73%. 68%. 55%. That's it? Lower than all. Oh. Yeah, so we have a much more international audience. That's than amazing. Yeah. UK is 11%, then Australia at 8.7, Canada at 8.2, and then everyone else is 16% total. But after Canada, guess guess which country comes after Canada? Australia. Uh, no, 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 no. He already Australia. said Australia. USA, UK, Australia, Canada, and then what's number oh. five? Sweden. Uh, Sweden. 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 Yeah. How'd you know? <gasps> I don't know. Well, just I was there. Sweden's- I mean, I know everything. <laughs> <laughs> Sweden's always been kind of high in our. It's the demo. first non-English speaking country, you know, as a, as their primary language, on our list. Although probably everybody there speaks English. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's not that's yeah. not their primary language. Do, are they a Are they an atheist country? Sweden historically. I, I would think that they're moving more towards um, atheism. They're yeah. Viking, aren't they? they yeah, but they're not atheist. They're not. They're, I wouldn't consider them an atheist country no that they worship thor and odin and those guys. <laughs> yeah right because yeah. if you're gonna believe they, in a god make the god be cool as balls right yeah, yeah. right <laughs> I, oh, I totally go for thor yeah it's interesting right as we're starting to record the show somebody sent us a poem for our 11th anniversary so how could we not read it jay you're gonna start us off this is a poem by olivia walser and the title is battle of logos you have a propensity for verbosity it's a use. It's a useful proclivity. Those not possessing, we pity. These inclinations bring us to our destinations, far from brain frustrations, nearer to mental vacations. Perceived as overthought, pessimism, or being distraught, we're just trying to figure out what this or that thing is all about. Catch them, catch them if you can. They always tend to get out of hand. A straw man without a brain, busted up for useless gain. A red herring sings a strong song. It sounds lovely, but it's wrong. A flash of electrical connections of neural warriors' objections. Then triumphant eardrums roll when reason reaches the goal. Eyes aglow with thought, logic's battle done fought. False conclusion, wave white flags, fallacies reduced to rags. <laughs> 
Ooh, I love it. It's so badass. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, E.E. <laughs> oh, e. Cummings, eat your heart out. <laughs> yeah. Go to uh, the, the SGU's Facebook page and see the new image that includes Kara with That's us and, and read that poem. Read <laughs> oh, that seriously. poem. When you're uh, – right, Bob? <laughs> Read the poem. That's an Learn old that poem. <laughs> that was from uh, Little Rascals. <laughs> little Rascals. The Little Rascals. Learn. Right. It was, re- it was oh read that poem. No, learn. learn. Learn that, that poem. poem. <laughs> anyway, read the poem as if you look at, or under, at the new image that I put not. up there of all of us because it's kind of serious and we're very serious in that picture. Oh, yeah. I love it. <laughs> that picture is propaganda, Jay. <laughs> uh oh. I feel a yes, segue coming on. <laughs> <laughs> it's, total, it's total propaganda, right? I could use that word any way I want Props. to. <laughs> Words mean exactly what I want them to mean. Right, Kara? Right, yes, exactly. Well, guys, I thought that this week, actually Steve recommended, and I think it's a great recommendation, that we follow up on an email for this week's What's the Word? Now, I got an email from Ryan Chufetali. That's how he says he pronounces it. I think that's right. Chufetali. And he says, uh, hi, SGU, obligatory nice things, nice things, nice things, blah, blah, blah. And propaganda is one of many terms with a significant gap in the definition and what much of the public thinks it means. Usually it is utilized by a group or member of one ideology in describing the public statements of an opposing ideology. Further, many people learn about it in history class when studying messages governments send to their citizens during wartime. In the U.S., this often means Nazi and Japanese propaganda during World War II. Unfortunately, I believe this leads to the assumption that propaganda is by definition false. Most definitions of propaganda I found include any statement designed to further some sort of cause, This definition is troubling, as it would render almost any persuasive speech as propaganda, which is certainly not the common connotation. So I think if we are to use the word propaganda, we should define it specifically, least of all so we know what we're talking about, and possibly that we ensure it cannot be accurately used against us. So I thought I would take a minute to actually look up probably the two most trusted sources and what their definition of propaganda are. And so I'm citing here Merriam-Webster's Dictionary and also the Oxford Dictionaries. And between the two of them, I'm seeing the full definition of propaganda is the spreading of ideas, information, or rumor for the purpose of helping or injuring an institution, a cause, or a person. Ideas, facts, or allegations spread deliberately to further one's cause or to damage an opposing cause. Chiefly derogatory information, especially of a biased or misleading nature, used to promote or publicize a particular political cause or point of view. The dissemination of propaganda as a political strategy. Now, also, there's a secondary definition, which I don't think was meant in Ryan's email, and that is really where the term came from. If you see the word propaganda and it's capitalized, it is a congregation of the Roman Curia having jurisdiction over missionary territories and related institutions. Another way to put that, a committee of cardinals of the Roman Catholic Church responsible for foreign missions founded in 1622 by Pope Gregory 15. So propaganda, a term that we use to describe some sort of statement, some sort of idea that is inflated, that is misleading, that is by definition, at least in the Merriam-Webster's dictionary, false. So I'm interested. Well, I don't know that I would agree with that. I don't, I, so I, I think, so Ryan said, and this is, you know, he, I think inadvertently created a bit of a false choice. Mm-hmm. So it, propaganda is not necessarily false. And if you define it as just persuasive speech, then that's everything. And I agree. Yeah. But I think that the, I wouldn't say that 
that propaganda is just persuasive or just false. I think that biased and misleading is a much better operational definition. It could be completely true, but the point is that you're presenting it in a way that is biased with a purpose. It's biased with a purpose of promoting or denigrating some agenda. And it is, at this point, it does have a pejorative connotation. Yeah. And I think that that's something that is important to point out. So just to further this um, a little bit, I wanted to get into the etymology. So then we can talk a little more about operational definitions and why they matter. So propaganda in night, or I'm sorry, in 1718 was the direct translation of Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, which is the Congregation for Propagating the Faith. Um, and that was that committee of cardinals that was established. Now, the Latin propagare is actually a movement to propagate some practice or ideology. So you can so- kind of see where that shift happened. And that was first coined in 1790. The modern political use of the term dates specifically from World War One. That's when it was first used. Um, and it wasn't originally pejorative when it was first used. It just meant material or inf- information propagated to advance a cause. So back in 1929, when we talked about propag- propaganda, we were just talking about trying to advance a cause and, and disseminating information. And over time, as we see often happens, the meanings of words and their usages evolve with the culture. And now it does have a strong pejorative meaning. And I don't think you can really talk about propaganda without it having that, like you said, Steve, that kind of biased right. nature now. Yeah, it ins- yeah it insinuates some level of uh, deception, deception, nefariousness, or something. Yeah, yeah. or uh, und- yeah, something something behind the scenes that that you can't immediately see. Exactly, right? and so I think it's a good word, but I do think it's important, as Ryan points out, that. When we do argue, when we are, you know, engaging in that high level kind of rhetoric, to have operational definitions of words is so important because when you get to the point where you're parsing speech and you're looking for fallacies and you're trying to build these sorts of assumptions, you have to know what the words you're using mean and you have to ensure that the audience or the person you're arguing with knows what they mean as well. And some words mean so many things or they have different shades of gray within them that if you just define the term at the top, your argument won't generally devolve into semantic quibbles, which can get really frustrating. And it's important to note that pseudoscientists and science deniers will deliberately use vague definitions of words in order to create deception, in order mm-hmm. to mislead. Like, for example, creationists, you know, specifically intelligent design proponents, they will very deliberately misuse the word information. They won't define it specifically or operationally. They will just use it in a vague way and they'll shift their definition as needed in order to evade arguments. Mm-hmm. You know, so this is a tactic of pseudoscientists to use vague or shifting definitions, which enable them to squirm out of being backed into a corner. So that's why it's so important. And I guess we should, we might, maybe we should define operational definition too. An operational definition just means that it's a way of defining something so that it's very specific. You know, like mm-hmm. if you have A and B, then, then you have it. You know, then that's the definition. It. Um, you can go through a process and determine very specifically if something fits the definition or not. Uh, so, like, there are very specific, different operational definitions of information. You got to pick one, and you got to use it, like mathematical definitions. But they're using it in this just a vague colloquial sense, and so they could shift around as needed. And it, and it, 
it's basically, you know, words are precise so that your thoughts can be precise. And when people use imprecise definitions because their thinking is imprecise. It's true. And I mean, it's something where I think the whole purpose of the segment, what's the word, is is there yeah. to try and describe the difference. Because sometimes words do mean two different things in two different contexts. The perfect example is the word theory. And you see it all the time, again, yeah. with intelligent design advocates trying to use the word theory in a colloquial kind of societal sense when – they're they're talking about the scientific definition, but they're utilizing right. the societal definition. And so it's really important that we know the difference between those things when they do exist. And they're doing it for propaganda purposes. Oh, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Let's, let's move on to some news items. Uh, so there has been a change of government in Canada. I know the U.S. is the midst of, of our campaign, mm-hmm. which, don't get me started, is a travesty, but whatever. Uh, the, uh, in Canada, the Harper administration has been replaced by the Trudeau administration. And one of the things that Trudeau has already reversed was Harper's policy of essentially restricting or censoring publicly or federally funded scientists from talking about their research, uh, which was, you know, widely criticized policy. But what's interesting is that now that, you know, Harper is out of power, uh, the scientists are in fact able to speak a little bit more freely about how bad it was. And it was uh-huh. a lot worse than I thought. You know, it really was oppressive. So uh, Nature has a very in-depth report on it. We'll link to that. We're actually we're linking to my blog post about it, which has a link to the Nature article in it, as well as other back backstory links. And it, it's a very in-depth report that that uh, interviews a number of scientists in Canada who were affected by this. And it is it is really stunning how oppressive the regulations were. So the, you know, the, the, again, essentially, the Harper administration said that. Um, you know, federally funded scientists can't talk directly to the media about their research. So in practice, what that meant is so previously, if a, a journalist needed a quote or needed a, a brief explanation or conversation with the scientist to write about a story, they'd call them up and they would talk to them. But with the regu- with the new regulations, they would have to go through a bureaucrat, right? They would they would have to talk to mm-hmm. a government official. And essentially, they would have to go through multiple layers of speaking to officials to, to the point where they would never really get to anybody prior to their um, deadline. So, which is, I think was by design. So what happened was, is that reporters essentially stopped even trying to make contact with the, with the scientists. So they effectively cut off the, the press from federally funded scientists by putting in this onerous layer of bureaucratic red tape. But it's actually worse than that because the scientists report that, like, for example, when they went to meetings, there literally would be a burly government agent babysitting them, making sure that they didn't talk out of turn, that they didn't talk about their research or say anything they weren't supposed to. This is Gestapo. It's it's like the KGB. I mean, one one of them said that, like, there were – during – the Soviet era, when Soviet scientists would visit, you know, and they had these, you know, humorless KGB agents shadowing them everywhere. That's exactly what it was like for them. That's what it reminded them of. 
Um, it was just really oppressive. Jeez. It was horrible wow. for morale. Everyone's morale was destroyed. They had totally cut them off from the media. And, uh, it, it was, it was terrible. Now, you know, Harper justified this by saying that, oh, well, sometimes these federally funded scientists, their research, uh, was involved lawsuits against the government or whatever, you know, that, so therefore we, we can't have them talking about research that might impact a, a court case. I don't know why this suddenly was a problem and it never apparently was a problem before. Right. But essentially what his critics said, well, the point of this was to protect industry, was to protect companies and to protect their ideology. So they didn't want re, like the, for in, one instance, researchers found that fish farming resulted in the propagation of viruses, which could then infect fish swimming in the ocean, you know, uh, ocean populations. So that's a pretty significant environmental concern. You know, we, mm -hmm. have, to, we have to be aware that, that this is a potential risk of fish farming so that we can do something about it. And they were prevented from talking about those finding, findings to anybody because they didn't want to hurt the fish farming industry or whatever. Oof. So it was really, really, really horrible. And from reading the accounts, one other thing that struck me, obviously this is all terrible, is that all of the 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 middlemen, right? All of the, the mid-position people in the government basically had to become complicit in all of this. So it, w what's a bit disturbing is how quickly everyone fell into line with these Gestapo tactics. They don't want to lose their job. Well, I know that, but what, it's scary how mm -hmm. quickly you can impose this kind of, this kind of oppression onto a system. You know, yeah. you'd think that people wouldn't put up with it, but and like I'm not, I'm not being judgmental. I mean, you can't judge people when, when you're not in their situation. You know, you put food on the table for your kids, et cetera, or whatever. Uh, but it's, you know, this one administration was able to just clamp down on science communication, you know, and that was it. And everyone fell. No whistleblowers. No, in everyone fell. No, like, no activists. There were, no. there were people who quit in protest. You know, yeah, there were those people who did that. Absolutely. Well, I don't know if they were loud enough in their protests because, you know, this is uh, an issue. That goes far beyond Canada and beyond this one administration. Obviously, this happens, can happen in many places that essentially people in power want to control information because mm -hmm. information is power, right? And scientific information is very powerful. And so people in power want to control it. They want the science to say what they want it to say, you know? Steve, isn't it go like, I thought it was first you get the money, then you get the guns, and then you get the women, right? <laughs> Then you get the power. <laughs> then you get the women. That's right. So, yeah, but it's, you know, it, when the, the government, you know, obviously in a perfect ideal world, you know, we, mm -hmm. you'd want the government to be informed by science and evidence, right? You'd have to, you know, you have to have complete hands off of the, the conduction of science. Science has to, scientists have to be free to do good quality, transparent science. And then that information, I think, belongs to the people, right? The people are funding it. You know, Harper's not paying for this research out of his own pocket. The mm -hmm. public is funding this research. The research belongs to the public, in my opinion. Come on, open it up. Yeah. Baby. So then part of that, and I think in, in the U.S., if you're, if you're, if you're, research is funded by the government, you have to talk to the public about it. You know what I mean? That's like a requirement. Now, you have to include in your grant, sure. how are you going to educate the people about the findings of your research that yeah. has been funded by them? You know, and that's great. We need to keep moving in that direction. We always, you know, you do have to be vigilant. It is amazing that, you know, 
every country, the U.S., Canada, everywhere, you have to be vigilant about democracy and transparency because it could it could be lost so quickly. You think of that? I mean, I think we have a fairly robust system, but I mean, just just mm. look at recent I'll events, take, and the yeah. consequences I mean, are can are and can be yeah. profound. And it really yeah. is the stuff of like horror movies. It's the stuff of sci-fi. There's a reason that we see these themes over and over in our fiction. Yeah. Because it's, it's so close to truth and it could so easily run, run that way. I just keep thinking about Orphan Black when you're talking about this. I just keep yeah. thinking about that's basically the main plot is that there's this huge conspiracy to cover this science that's happening. And we see that it can happen. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh, chills. It's terrible. It just takes a little bit of complacency, mm-hmm. right? Or somebody who knows how to push the public's buttons. That's. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that code? You know, yeah, I think we all know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's amazing. Wink, wink, not, not. It is amazing. All right, anyway. Oh, you trumped that one. <laughs> Good job. Jay, what the hell is biohacking? That's a great question, Steve. I'm trying to find the answer to that question. So you guys, you guys have heard of hacking. Mm-hmm. And yes. now oh, we have this yeah. phrase that's been kicking around for a while called biohacking. So put simply, trying to reduce this down to what I think it is, it's it's do-it-yourself biology and medicine, right? So individuals and small organizations and even some for-profit corporations engage in different kinds of biohacking to explore biology with the with the goal of, I guess, exploiting the human biology, right? And according to the internet, biohacking is when an individual manages in some way uh, to enhance their own biology through the use of medical, nutritional, physical, or ele- electronic methods. So I decided that I was just going to try to find some examples of what biohacking is to give us a better understanding. Here's a, a short list that I found. So one of them is taking a nootropic to improve focus, memory, and intelligence. using I mean, a it's wa- a nootropic. Nootropic. Right? That's close enough. Using a wearable fitness device like a Fitbit that records your oh, yeah. biometric data. Okay, that's biohacking. Implanting magnets to detect electrical fields and pick up screws. I added the pick up screws Ooh, cool. part. Um, which which you could do right it is helpful it is helpful for sure you drop like that little screw with your eyeglass from your eyeglasses and it's in the corner behind the furniture man if my finger get it you'll never get you need a you need a magnetic finger evan see but this is like slightly more advanced biohacking at this point than just like wearing a fitbit no you're right yeah we're bouncing all over the place here last one listen to this performing high-end gene sequencing research in a laboratory or in your garage And I mean that in your garage statement. So part of the idea of biohacking is that you don't need to be a biologist to do it. Uh, and I'm not saying that everyone involved in biohacking is uneducated or lacking you know, training or whatever. But there is this do-it-yourself garage laboratory vibe that's strongly associated with it. I think this is where the hacking aspect of it comes in. So people with no formal education are running experiments and some even use expensive e- equipment and they don't have training. So, you know, interpret that any way you will. There's a really interesting way to look at the entire concept, though. It's complete bullshit. <laughs> I'm oh, serious. Yeah, I mean, I think, oh. yeah, when I wrote about this recently, my take was that it doesn't even exist. <laughs> Meaning, like, we talk, we just talked about definitions, right, Kara? So yeah. what is the operational definition of biohacking? Tell me what it is that isn't medicine and self-help. But isn't, okay, 
isn't biohacking not about maintaining or restoring, but improving? Isn't the idea that there's a baseline why and I then said, you're increasing? And self-help. Yeah, yeah that was uh, And self-help. Gotcha, a, gotcha. And self-help. Because they talk about like drinking coffee. The caffeine's a stimulant. It makes sure it wakes up your brain. That's biohacking. Really? Coffee's biohacking? Is, uh, <laughs> is yoga biohacking? Is doing exercise yeah, Under that definition, yeah. it would is be. Is weightlifting yeah. biohacking? Sure. I, is this, why not? Is the iron I get from my food biohacking? Yeah, just being, having good nutrition. It's... I think, in effect, it's just a new branding for marketing. Yeah. new marketing, new branding for self-help, specifically nutritional oh, yep. and you know snake oil type of nonsense. and unregulated medicine and just what we don't. Yeah, need because it. you could because when you think about it, right? So I know what you're saying, Carrie. You're like, yeah, we want to in- improve the capabilities of the human mind and body. Great, and I would argue that medicine is on that path. It's just on the slow, steady realistic yeah. path right they're trying it's, it's, to like that's health promotion yeah health, health promotion is part of part of medicine so i guess me, i always thought that biohacking specifically required the use of technology i guess i always made a distinction in my mind between like nootropics and like basically vitamins and like using tech the, that would be fine Karen, huh. if that were the definition, gotcha. that's fine. And maybe some people think that is the definition and they use it that way, but it has evolved into just another self-help branding yep. and to equal, you know, like the, the butter coffee, butter coffee, that's biohacking. No, it's just bullshit. That's what that is. But yeah, I think if it, it um, yeah. if like cyborg kind of stuff where you're implanting electronics into your body, <laughs> if you want to, yeah, if you want right? that, again, that's not. There's nothing unique or new to the concept of biohacking, but yeah. if you want to use that to refer to cyborg upgrades, fine. At least then it's it's a thing. Yep. At least then it's cool. But it's it's being <laughs> used now. It's just it's it's medicine and self help yeah. and exercise and diet and it's nothing new and yeah. woo and where a can, lot of woo and mostly bullshit. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where can I buy? Where can I buy this? Buy? Let's, <laughs> but I, I find it very interesting when biohacking kind of crashes up against modern medicine because, again, Kara, I thought the same thing you did. Yeah, you know, it's it's about attaching a robotic arm to you so you could do all sorts of stuff. You know, but if you think, if you really like, just take a three second breather and think about it. Modern medicine is doing all of these things that biohacking has this aura of. Of that it's about that, right? So as an example, the robotic arm. Real modern science does have robotic arms and people are getting outfitted with them where, you know, I don't see a bunch of, of self-named biohacking companies saying that, you know, we're doing this, but, you know, the typical modern medicine isn't, you know, they're not actually labeling themselves as biohacking companies. They're just companies that are making robotic arms for people that lost limbs, you know? Yeah. I thought this was funny, too. Would you consider something to be biohacking if it greatly improved your eyesight? Uh, like my glasses? That's what I thought of. I'm like, well, <laughs> there, there's eyeglasses that greatly yeah. improve my crappy 48-year-old eyesight. That's true. Right? It is a hack. Lace- it's it's a way to hack my biology yeah. to make it more improved. Lace- technology, yeah. I, you know, eye surgery, and eyeglasses are technology for sure. I mean, they're very yeah. early technology, but they are definite, like by definition, technology. Yeah. So we're romancing it. We're thinking of like the sci-fi idea of this. You know, we can give you tons of examples of things that are in like the 
public consciousness about, oh, yeah, we're going to like the six million dollar man gets, you know, these robotic legs or an eye implant or an ear, you know, hearing implants. Well, there is a company out there that makes these earbud type devices that you put in your ear and you leave them in your ear and it, they allow you to change frequencies to, you know, raise or lower the overall volume of things you hear. That's to- I, if anything is biohacking, that's biohacking. Mm-hmm. But it's just a cyborg-like extension, right? It's a, it's not really connected to your body. It's something that it's a device you use that gives you augmented capabilities. That's, yeah. Then by that definition, so is your iPhone. Yeah, but that's I know. So the thing is, yeah. it, when I earlier when I said it's all bullshit, it really is kind of all <laughs> bullshit. It's just not a good definition. It's not a, it's not a clear thing. It's not really a movement yeah. so much as it is just a bunch of hype and sci-fi leftover. Now, if anyone disagrees or knows companies, yeah, write us in and let us know. But Steve and I did what I would consider to be a deep dive, and we really couldn't find anything legit. And nootropics are just vitamins. They're just usually when we think of vitamins, we think of somatic targets not neural targets but it's the same like shtick right if you take these vitamins or these supplements x will happen in your brain but that that dates back forever too i mean that's the same thing as uh fish fish oil and all these there are a ton of vitamins that already exist like that but now they're called nootropics so they can charge more but nutraceuticals but it's getting yeah it's getting to a point now like again this company Bulletproof, like they're they're like saying they're extending people's lifespans with coffee. Uh, they're like, okay, use their diet plan to feed your mind and body. That's one thing that they say. They say to uh, you know eliminate toxins found in many crops. So they're they're essentially like yeah. anti what? always a red flag. G- yeah. Anti like modern crop and GMO. They say that their diet keeps you in ketosis, and they said this is great for your brain. What I don't think that ketosis is great for your brain. If you there are certain disorders where like a like a ketoacidosis can be helpful, but like I don't think that. No, so this is not ketoacidosis. This is just ketosis. Oh, without, just ketosis. without getting to the point where you're in a coma from ketoacidosis. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> gotcha. Again, there's there's just no evidence that this is a, this is in any long term benefit. You know, they say, it, well, <sighs> the brain you know likes to use ketones. Now the brain can use ketones. It yeah. prefers glucose. But it will, it'll make do with ketones when it doesn't have glucose. That's just a survival mechanism. That's just so your brain doesn't shut down when you don't have enough sugar in your body. But they're yeah, turning it into- that's so you don't into, die. Yeah, right. It's, it's just, this is your rescue pathway. You know, this is what happens when you don't have enough sugar, sugar to feed your, your very hungry brain. But again, it's just, that's what I mean. Like they, they, they think they understand something about ketosis, but there's no clinical evidence to back up anything that they're saying. Check but this out, Steve. Sounds all sciencey, you know? This was another <laughs> one. This was the big one that just blew me away. Go gluten-free because gluten is bad for your health. And I'm quoting uh-huh. the website now. Gluten Just, ca- j- just blanket. <laughs> gluten yep. causes your gluten. body to elevate levels of inflammation, particularly by forming, uh, Steve, psycho- cytokines. Cytokines. Yeah. Cytokines. Pro- all right. So, particularly by forming cytokines, proteins that are found in the patients with uh, in patients with Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, and autism, all neurological oh. diseases. So Wait, we all have oh, though. That's just gluten. an inflammatory yeah, right. protein. Exactly. We yeah. all have. Cy- yeah, red cytokines. blood cells are also found in all of those diseases. Yeah. I know. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> A couple of other funny things, and then uh, we can move on. So, one thing they were saying is um, they consider like getting good sleep. To be biohacking. That's their one of their big steps. Get good sleep. 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 Right? Yeah. And um, 
you know, eat well. That's that's like a biohacking <laughs> advice. Oh wait, I know what else is biohacking. Breathing. Breathe. Oh, breathing you should definitely an, breathe. Breathing an earth-like atmosphere. Yeah. <laughs> and then they said hacking your nervous system by using meditation. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Relaxation. That's yeah. Biohacking. So anyway, yeah, have fun with biohacking out there, and uh, we'll see you in about a decade. <laughs> I'm biohacking right now. In fact, hey, <laughs> learning, studying, and reading—that's all biohacking. Yeah. You're feeding your brain changing, information, changing your mind. Sure, you're talking. But you could change the, the physics in your mind, the cells in your mind, Steve, by reading. Yeah. <gasps> all right, Bob. I understand scientists have figured out everything we need to know about gravitational waves. Well, I wouldn't go there at all. Uh, seems like they may have found uh, another associated wrinkle. Uh, so as- astronomers have announced a second potentially important discovery related to the gravitational wave announcement earlier this year. Uh, they spotted a burst of gamma rays near the area of the gravitational waves that may have been uh, caused by a short gamma ray burst. Uh, now, such su- uh, simultaneous events could together reveal details that would otherwise have been uh, totally hidden from view. So, uh, of course, I've got to go over the gravitational wave thing really quick. I'm sure you all remember it. Probably one of the, the biggest scientific discovery of the year. LIGO uh, announced they, d- they detected um, gravitational waves from what appears to be two black holes that merged. Uh, each black hole was massive, 30 solar masses each approximately. And uh, this is the first time we've had such solid evidence for the, the detection of gravitational waves, and it could, of course, open an, an entirely new field, gravitational wave astronomy. So huge, huge news. So it turns out, though, that less than a half a second after that event occurred in September of 2015, the Fermi Gamma Ray Burst Monitor, GBM, got hit with a faint pulse of high-energy X-rays that lasted only about a second. Yeah, that's a coincidence. Uh, well, the, it, 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 the microwave, huh? it certainly could be, but uh, that some estimates put that the chance that it, the odds that it was a co- uh, coincidence at, at far less than 1%. Now, Fermi's GBM, you might not be familiar with it, it it's essentially scans the entire sky that's not blocked by the Earth uh, for X-rays and gamma rays. And uh, typically, it's looking for energies between 8,000 8, and 40 million electron volts uh, which is a lot. Uh, if you consider visible light uh, ranges from two to three electron volts, this is some energetic stuff. And of course, gamma rays are doesn't get much much more energetic than that. So the the GBM is the best current instrument for detecting gamma ray bursts. Um, these are these are the brightest electromagnetic events known in the entire universe. Uh, certain supernovae and hyper hypernovae release much of their energy in, in a collimated beam of death that comes out of both poles. And uh, GRBs, uh, gamma ray bursts, are so intense they can wreak havoc from thousands of light years away. I read of some estimates from uh, a burst from 8,000 light years away. It could potentially uh, deplete 20 to 70% of the ozone. It would then, of course, raise UV levels. Uh, it, could chem- it could chemically damage the, strat- uh, the stratosphere and collapse food chains. So, and in fact, some mass extinctions point to a gamma ray burst as the cause. So they can be very nasty, and that's even if they're still far away. Fortunately, Fermi, or maybe unfortunately, Fermi did not see a regular gamma ray burst. They can last for a few minutes to even hours. This one lasted only a second. So this is a subset of a gamma ray burst. It's called a short gamma ray burst, kind of like... I'm a subset of novella called short novella. You know? 
Best analogy I can come up with. So it's believed a, a different process creates the short GRBs, such as a collapsing neutron star or black hole, which of course would create these titanic gravitational waves, which we've, which we've detected. Now the main mystery though is that the black hole mergers aren't supposed to emit a boatload of X-rays or gamma rays. It just, the theory just d- does not account for that. For that to happen, you would, you'd expect to have some gas orbiting around it to create it. But any gas that's around a binary black hole would be consumed uh, by the black holes before the merger. So it's it's a little puzzling. And for that reason, uh, some scientists believe that the gamma ray detection was just a coincidence and had nothing to do with the gravitational wave generating collision. But some theories, though, attempt to explain how they could be generated. But we definitely need more observations to really pin down what happens when two such such objects merge. Hopefully, we'll we'll catch a glimpse of the gravitational waves of another black hole merger in the near future so uh like i said the chance of coincidence is is very is very low just like 0.2 percent i believe and i've heard some figures even far less than that uh the gamma rays uh are though they they were potentially very helpful they helped us pinpoint exactly where in the sky the gravitational waves came from so imagine ligo identified a swath of sky of the sky 600 degrees wide where the gravitational waves could have been from could have come from and that was a little bit of a surprise i thought it was pinpointed a, a better than that but 600 degrees is kind of big fermi identified an overlapping swath uh, where the where the gamma rays could have come from so where you where those two areas overlap that's the most likely location of the event and it actually reduced the possibility from 600 degrees of the sky down to 200 so that was really really helpful in pinpointing where this whole thing came from uh lindy blackburn is she's a postdoctoral fellow at the Harvard's Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. She said, there's an incredible synergy between the two observations with gamma rays revealing details about the source's energetics and local environment and gravitational waves providing a unique probe of the dynamics leading up to the event. So we potentially found a gamma ray partner to some type of gravitational waves that could together solve even more mysteries. So let's just hope we see those black hole mergers again real soon. So cool stuff. Yeah, gamma ray bursts—they are scary, man. They are scary. Yeah, that's true. Burst. Imagine it's—it's it's basically a, a a a beam of death from like a Death Star. I mean, it's this thing. <laughs> can you imagine? A, that's a, so a, negative. It's like a laser beam that could fry your planet from from light years away. It's just amazing power. Mm-hmm. Bob, if it did that to our, if it did that to the ozone, would we know? Like, would we hear a noise? You think, or? Would, you know what would happen? A noise. Uh, <laughs> uh, interesting question. I th- the sky. I, I think I could say that the sky would look all freaky for a little while, and we'd be saying, "What the oh, hell is freaky. happening? Freaky? Why how? Is just, Why is just, my skin I'm, burning? I'm not sure. I've never seen or read any any simulations. Would there be aurora all over the place? May, ooh, that'd be awesome. We're, you know, you're chemically changing the stratosphere. Um, nothing would really surprise <laughs> me, but I, I'm just not sure if there'd be any visible <laughs> visible effects that we would see. But uh, Would we just have instant cancer? No, no. no uh, okay. Kara, did you see um, Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> yes. Remember at the end where he says, it's beautiful, and his face melts off, and his head blew yes. up. That's what it would be like. Yeah. <laughs> it's beautiful. Bleh. Opening of the ark. <laughs> Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses. Bob, do you like to learn? Sometimes, when I'm awake. (laughs) (laughs) The Great Courses Plus 
He has unlimited access to lecture series on hundreds of topics that are taught by top professors. We think the SGU listeners should uh, tap into the Great Courses unbelievable catalog because you can literally learn about almost anything that you like, especially if it's about science, but they have other things too. They talk about things like photography, art history, of course, tons of science courses. And here's a great <laughs> example of an awesome science course. It's our very own friend, physicist Sean Carroll's Mysteries of Modern Physics Time. Now, Sean is such a pro about time. You know, it's a topic of many of his talks. He's even written a brilliant book about it. And of course, now it is a great courses course. You can learn everything from, I don't know, how time travel is portrayed in movies and fiction, how far off most storytellers really are with the physics. And there's also a lot of insights, you know, on the connection between memory and causality and action with regards to time. And The Great Courses Plus is offering SGU listeners a chance to stream this course and hundreds of others, including certainly Mysteries of Modern Physics Time, which is a $215 value, but you can get it now for free. Whoa. So start watching today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Kara, this is an interesting news item. <laughs> I had some problems with the reporting, which is not uncommon, but tell me about slime molds. Yes, I am really into this news item because me too. I always, yeah, I always knew that slime molds were awesome, but I never knew quite how awesome they were and also how complicated slime molds are. So the, the news the news item is that uh, some researchers in Paris actually did some experiments on a specific type of slime mold and were able to show that it habituates to irrelevant stimuli. And so they are presenting this as a type of learning, which actually in kind of the psychological literature – yeah, that is a very specific type of learning. And it's a common thing that we look at in infants to see if they are, if they're cognitively kind of like where they need to be. So a little bit of backstory, they specifically wanted to focus on a, a type of slime mold called Physarum polycephalum, which literally translates to the many headed slime, which I love. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. So slime molds come in a ton of different types. I think there's something like 900 known species of slime mold. Flavors. And, yeah, the weird thing about slime mold is, A, it's not a fungus. It's right. like, it's not really what we think of as traditional mold. And B, all the different types of slime mold aren't even that similar species-wise. Like, they come from different um, classes, different orders, different families. So this one specifically that we're talking about, Physarum polycephalum, is a slime mold that is an amoebozoid slime mold. So Ooh. it is a single cellular organism. Yeah, they are, they are pro, they are protists. Protista. Yeah, they're protists. Yeah. Um, and which, ba which basically means we're not sure what this is. Let's throw it into this category. <laughs> yeah, <basically. laughs> yeah, it's like we <laughs> used to think that protists were like animals and then, you know, they've, protists have changed their classification multiple times over the years of taxonomy because, yeah, they're sort of like, the catch-all classification. But we know of protists from learning about amoebas and paramecium's in school. You guys remember learning about them, right? Mm -hmm, and seeing yeah. them under the microscope. Mm -hmm. Paramecium brain. That. What movie is that from? See, this is going to be, this is for a different generation listening. Paramecium, Paramecium brain. brain. Oh, you got me on that one. I think it's from Sandlot. Didn't see Which was it. such a movie when I was a kid. 
Yay, Sandlot. Anyway, um, so <laughs> some people listening will appreciate that. Um, so Physarum polycephalum, which is the, um, the big yellow slime mold that you'll often see in like your garden. Not often, but sometimes you might see it in your garden that sort of splays out in a bunch of different directions. It's fascinating. It's only one cell, but it has a lot of nuclei if it's already gone through its sort of mating cycle of its life. So it can be multinucleated, single cell. And of course, it has no brain. It also doesn't even have what we think of as like a rudimentary brain like many insects do, which we would call a ganglion, which is like a, a little cluster of nerve cells that sort of function like a very, very uh, premature brain. It doesn't have either of those things. But historically, they have been shown to be able to solve mazes. They follow efficiency paths, for example. It's been shown that they will choose the most efficient uh, or the most nutritive food source over a, a lesser nutritive fo- food source. These are all things that we think of as having great evolutionary advantage. The question is, how are they doing it? So the study at hand right now was just published in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And what the researchers at this university in Paris did is they said, we want to look at the mechanism of habituation, which is a very, I guess, simple type of learning if you want to define it as learning. It's it's uh, having a diminishing response to a stimulus that's not relevant. So think about, I don't know, a baby and you're going to show the baby something that you want him to pay attention to. But then the baby hears something that catches his attention and he looks at it. After a while, if that thing in the background continues to happen, he's going to have a habituated response and he's no longer going to look at it. And that's how researchers can study, oh, this baby is learning. He's learning that when the refrigerator makes noise, nothing happens. He doesn't get food. He doesn't get mommy. It's just a noise the refrigerator makes and he's no longer paying close attention to it. Um, and it's a really necessary part of, of getting by. And so they decided, I don't know if that was a good example. <laughs> was well, that a good one example? of the examples they gave was like, if was you, the puppy. You, have, you have a new puppy. Yeah. And then, yeah, maybe that one's better. Every time a car goes by, then it eventually realizes that nothing bad's going to happen. So it stops barking. Unless you have a dog like my dog who is like special and he just barks every time a car goes by regardless. <laughs> yes, as, as does Molly. There is no situation yeah. going on at all. None whatsoever. But it's, you know, think about all the times in your life when habituation really mattered. Like why we think about how you can't feel your shoes. You wear shoes every day. Can you imagine if you could constantly feel your shoes on your feet? That would not be good. You just get used to certain things and you don't pay attention to them anymore. Yeah, that, that's so important. It, basically, your skin is there to tell you this is what's new. If it's not new, yes. you become habituated to it. Exactly. And so infant, I keep using the infant example because this is the type of research that's often done with, um, with infants because infants can't talk, neither can slime molds. So what they did is they chose to use two chemicals, quinine and caffeine, which are actually harmless to slime molds, but they're bitter. So they're off-putting, even though they actually aren't dangerous. And they built this little bridge. They put the slime mold in auger and they built a little bridge to to have the slime mold in one Petri dish full of auger and the food source in another Petri dish full of auger. And they treated the bridge with two chemicals. In some instances, they used quinine. In other instances, they used caffeine. Now, neither of those chemicals is harmful to the slime mold, but they're both off-putting because they're bitter. And so they wanted to know, A, will these slime molds cross the bridge in order to get to the food? And then once they realize that the food is there, will they, and that they're not going to be injured by this, will they do it faster? And what they found was that when compared to a matched control, 
they took significantly longer to get across the bridge. So the slime molds who had to go to either the caffeine or the quinine or had to go across the caffeine or the quinine to get to the food took 200 minutes on early attempts. And that was over three times the amount of time that it took the slime molds that didn't have to deal with caffeine or quinine. But then they realized that by day six, once they had, quote, habituated or learned that the quinine or the caffeine wasn't dangerous, they were able to move over in a less cautious way, in a way that was less specific and also significantly faster. Um, now, they wanted to make sure that this wasn't some sort of effect of just um, exhaustion, right? Like, I've been doing this so long. I now know this is a more efficient path. I don't want to deal with it anymore. You know, that it wasn't about habituation, habituating to the chemical, but just that they were getting tired. So they did something pretty smart. They switched it up. The ones that were trained on quinine, they now gave caffeine and vice versa. And what they found was they just reverted instantly back to their timid way, that slow, very specific way of crossing the bridge. And then they again rehabituated and were able to do it more quickly. So it's nice that they had these multiple types of controls worked into this um, experiment. I think it's actually quite a brilliant and, and uh, what we often say in science, elegant exp- uh, experiment, meaning that it's just very simple. So the researchers are saying, you know, I consider this to be learning in a very classical psychological sense. We think about classical conditioning. We think about operant conditioning. We think about habituation, these very simple types of learning. And we've done these experiments in animals, even in plants, even in protista over the years, uh, this is a very specific type of learning. Granted, it's not high level. Granted, it obviously doesn't require a brain or even a ganglion. This is a single-celled organism, yet it is capable of habituation. So, you know, maybe we should be rethinking how we define learning, maybe even how we define intelligence. I don't think that this has any sort of great meaning with regards to how we as human beings learn, but more I think it has um, evolutionary insights. So uh, just to play devil's advocate a little bit, I thought that the the reporting, not in obviously the the paper itself, but in like the press release, was a little bit heavy-handed with the whole learning bit. Oh, completely. Yeah, so it's like, yeah, if you you broaden the definition of learning – you know, this kind of behavior. And when you, you know, the thing is, it's not learning in the, in the sense that a nervous system learns and that it's storing information. There's, there's just a very simple chemical algorithm in there. You know, it's like chemo, mm-hmm. it's chemotaxis, right? Uh, it is chemotaxis. You go up That's... or down the chemical gradient. It affects some behavior in some way, like bacteria. They swim and spin, you know, and then the, the ratio of swimming and spinning changes depending on whether or not they're going up a gradient of something they like or down a gradient of something they don't like, whatever. It's just basically chemotaxis. Yeah, and the interesting thing here is that it's chemotaxis with a habituation, with habituation component Sure, so it. you're down-regulating those receptors. You know, it could mm-hmm. be something as simple as that. Is down-regulating, meaning receptor gets less responsive if you keep hitting it over and over again. Does that... Yeah, so it's almost more like addiction than it is learning, yeah, right? Is that really <laughs> learning? Is, is, is you know, yeah, is... is receptor habituation learning you, you end up broadening so they're broadening the definition to include this then they're saying that it changes our understanding of learning no it just changed your definition of the word learning <laughs> you know just whatever i, I just thought it was i think what cheesy. it really does more than anything is that it it helps us again sometimes when we stop and we take a look at the micro world. And actually, in this case, slime molds are macro. That's why they're so fascinating. They're yeah. these single cellular organisms that are freaking huge. They're the blob. But when you, 
They're the blob, yeah. yeah. But when you stop and you look at things that we think of as being fundamentally simple, they're often more complex than we give them credit for. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think you're absolutely correct. And that's kind of what I found annoying is not... Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that they missed the real story here. You know, they, they framed it in as kind of a simplistic way that doesn't really, I think, teach the person who's reading it what's actually going on. It's not that, oh, it turns out you don't need a brain to learn. I mean, that, that's not the lesson here. The lesson yeah. here is that mm-hmm. seemingly simple organisms <laughs> can display very complex behavior, that there are other mechanisms for complexity other than advanced brains. You know, they could be, they could be chemically very mm-hmm. complicated and that could, you know, be a basis for behavior that we think of as being very complicated. That's, I think, really the lesson there. And that's what, yeah, you're right. And that's what, when I read this article, I was like, oh, I love it. This is so fascinating. It's such a fascinating species. I feel like if you, if the reporter had set up, you know, slime molds and specifically Physar and Polycephalum better, you would have been like, whoa, it's so cool. I want to learn everything there is to know about it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So. Yeah. That's not the world we live in. Um, I know. <laughs> all right. All right, Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Okay, guys, I played this noisy last week. So that one. Oh, nope. don't forget the ending, because that was mm. the big clue. That one um, oh. tweaked something with Steve. Steve, you had a little yeah, disturbance it's a, it's in the a, It's a telephone thing that I is my my sort of memory is that if something happens, like if you, it's like a dial up thing. Yeah, you know, if you call like early internet. Nah, thing, what, right? No, no, no. Uh, it was like, is it a payphone? If, if you dial a phone that's out of service or something, I don't know, some kind of message that you get over the phone. That's that's what it what it reminded huh. me of. Anybody else? Yeah, well, some, a fax some machine? No, that's thingy. not what it sounds like when you call a fax, is Something it? Something having to do with the telephone. Ahoy, hoy. Ahoy, hoy. All right, so here, here is what it is. It's, it's uh, having to do with telecommunications yes. in band singling. It's the, huh? it's the sending of what? metadata and control information within the same band or channel used for voice. So in, sure. th- this was actually something that gets played at the end of a TV station doing their daily transmission. Oh, yeah. No way. Yes. Ah. That's oh, awesome. Wow. I thought they usually just play the national anthem and go to bed. But that's not the case anymore, right? Because most TV stations, or you have to do a digital broadcast now. Yeah, they, they're called yes. DTMF tones. And yeah, they, they don't, they're not being used anymore. They, they, may, gotcha. they might still send like this call sign to say, hey, we're shutting off now or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But you don't hear it. This was like, you know, back in, I think it ended in the 90s. Or was developed in in the nineties and ended in the in the you know the aughts. So there's <laughs> there's telephone and then non telephone. So this this one here was definitely non telephone. DTMF tones. They're also used by cable television broadcasters to indicate the start and stop times of local insertion points during station breaks. Okay, so very it's cool. It's a queuing mechanism. It's like our sync uh, that we do in a way. So the winner, Andrew Hansford, he said DTMF tones used for in-band signaling. Awesome, Andrew. I don't know how you wow. do that. My guess is he works for... Uh, <laughs> yeah, he works in broadcast. Yeah, he works at Optimum or something. <laughs> because of that weird phone sound that it can't, you know, the, the familiar phone sound, a lot of people said that these are coins going into a payphone, which, you know, isn't that far off because it is the phone, the that physical phone telling the phone company um, this money has been dropped. 
So uh, very good, guys. Good, good. You got a ton of responses, by the way. A lot of people yeah. making cool guesses. So this week's noisy. Check this out. Weird, Whoa, huh? That's weird. Now, so I the afterlife does exist. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think it's ghosts. This was sent in by a listener named Eric Barsic, and um, boy, is this interesting. Boy, is this uh. interesting. Uh, pretty much everybody will be able to relate to this because of how everyone everyone has used something that has to do with this. I, how about that? Very interesting <laughs> noisy. I know. It's really cool. Like I, I did a deep dive on it and I'm like blown away that I didn't hear about it before and then just how creepy it sounds. It's super ethereal. Email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org with your guesses and with your awesome noisies. Keep sending them to me, guys. You're sending me a lot of cool stuff and I'm building up a, a catalog. Uh, you know what? Good luck. This one's a hard one. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Jay. That was cool. So, Jay, we're a week out from Nexus, and we have a couple of shows that I want to talk about that are attached to Nexus. If only George were here to talk about them with us. <laughs> Is that Hello? you, George? Hello. Well, How did that Lady happen? person with the skepticking. You're the skeptic that fell to Earth, George. That's, awesome. How you doing, That's buddy? me, What's up, George. Wow, this internet's amazing, isn't it? I think it's going to catch on. I really think it's going to catch on. I don't care what you think, Jay. I think this internet is here to stay for a while. Wow. Are you guys ready? Are you ready for Nexus? Are you guys ready for Nexus? Can you understand that this is so close to being a thing? I'm never ready until it's happening. I'm kind of freaking out, you guys. This is my first Nexus. Oh, my gosh. That's right. You'll never be the same. I'm freaking out because Kara is doing the skeptical extravaganza with us. I can't wait. Kara, you're going to love it. Awesome. What night is that, Jay? The skeptical extravaganza isn't that uh, what? What? What day of the week is that happening? And what's, that's what's Friday the thirteenth. Oh, that's right, awesome. Friday the 13th. my perfect. favorite day. We're doing the whole show under a ladder. It's going to be perfect, <laughs> Carrie. It is, is it? as haunted as the most haunted place on the earth. Oh, <laughs> no place is more haunted. I love I love this show because we, we can change it up. You know, like this isn't like a format that we have to follow. Like we just come yeah. up with new bits that we want to do. And this year we came up with some really new and awesome stuff I, I can't wait you'll see when you of course if you go to the show you'll see what we got going on yeah, is, there so, a, is there a special guest which is going to be at that show as well I, yes. I forget is there yeah Bill Nye the oh that's guy. right yeah. wow yeah, he, he had so much last fun year. last year that he, he specifically requested that he join us again this year for, for the extravaganza even if you're not attending the entire Nexus conference you can buy tickets just for the extravaganza on Friday night of course if you are coming to the conference why wouldn't you go to the extravaganza it's going to be awesome uh, and George also you're doing a thing on 
Thursday night. Tell us about that. Thursday night. I'm, I'm really excited. This is a piece that, that I'm, I'm performing Thursday night to kind of kick off the entire weekend. It's called the Broad Street Score. And this is 20 years worth of music, 20 years worth of my music, which has been reorchestrated for string quartet and voice. I, uh, I premiered the piece here in Bethlehem back in January in the middle of a three and a half foot snowstorm. Uh, so I had a very small but loyal audience. So I'm kind of counting this as the premiere. It's the New York City premiere, but in many ways, this is the premiere of the Broad Street score. Uh, my incredibly good friend, Slough Halliton, he orchestrated half the pieces and a gentleman that I literally met on Twitter from Finland named Veiko Rihu. He orchestrated the other half. Veiko's going to be in the States. He's coming to the conference, which is very exciting. We're going to premiere this piece sort of officially in New York City. It's it's amongst the musical uh, adventures that I've had, I'm probably m- most proud of this piece because it's the most uh, sort of of a piece. It's, it's, it's really fun. It's got this scientific skeptical mindset to it because it's 20 years worth of me sitting here in Bethlehem writing songs about about skepticism and science and falling in love and falling out of love and going on adventures and doing all kinds of stuff. And it's, 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 it's a nice arc. There's kind of a story to it. And on top of, top of it all, just if the, as if that wasn't enough, the incredibly talented Hai Ting Chin is going to be our narrator because there's a nar- narration that goes along with this as well. Awesome. So I figured if we're going to have one of the premier opera singers in the world, why make her sing? I'm just going to have her be the narrator. <laughs> I'm sure she singing. appreciates that. Good call, good call. I'm not going to be nervous enough singing, so I figured let me have, again, one of the premier opera singers in the world sort of there on stage to just kind of be, just to add to my overall kind of nervousness, but just to to enhance the thing. So, no, I'm really excited. If you are in New York City uh, Thursday night, May 12th, again, you don't have to be a Nexus registrant to come to the show. Uh, it's going to be a really, if you're into classical music, if you're into strings, if you're into weird sort of different things, reorchestrations, if you've ever heard uh, Elvis Costello's album, The Juliet Letters, yes. that was awesome. kind of the inspiration yeah. for this. I mean, that that album is an incredible record, and uh, that thing is 25 years old, so I thought, okay, it's time for someone else to do something similar to that, and that's what we've done. So I'm really excited. I'm really, really, really excited for this. I think it's going to be a very special, different kind of night, and it's going to kick off Nexus, and you come do that. And then you come to the extravaganza on the next night, and uh, then you can come see Baba Brinkman on the third night, which is going to be its own fantastic thing as well. George, do you play as part of the Broad Street score? Do you do when I was your age? That song is included. Yes, yes. I know that's that's oh, a, a, a favorite of yours. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. It's it's thirteen songs are in there. Is it? And, can you also uh, play the one that always makes everybody cry? I do. Oh, I do. Yeah. Yes. Oh, and, damn it. And, and let me tell you. <laughs> Bring your tissues. The arrangement with the strings, you thought you cried before. Oh, oh boy. This yes. slough did that arrangement oh, and it, it, it just, it's like, it's like Indiana Jones pulling out the heart on the, on the bridge. I mean, it's just, it's that. It's beautiful. That's it's, the uh, second Indiana Jones reference this episode. That's true. Really? <laughs> wow. Ooh, really? What are the odds? Okay. Goodbye, Dr. Jones. Yeah, we'll all be there too. So if you do come, uh, you know, we're going to be hanging out before and after the show. 
Um, so, so feel free to come up and, of course, you know, say hi, talk to us. That's why we're there. But I'm George. Totally dying to see this show, man. I, I just can't wait to see it. I've been a fan of your music since I've known you, and I have your songs, me- you know, totally memorized. So it's going to be an awesome experience for me because I'm going to be, <laughs> you know, experiencing this reorchestration of all that stuff. Yeah. But I'll be able yeah. to sing along. We've been saying it's kind of you get to hear them. Uh, uh, you get to hear your favorite songs for the first time. George, I can't wait. So we will see you next Thursday in New York City. Yes, yes, yes. And if you want to come see us, see George, see the extravaganza, go to necss.org and you can sign up for anything you want. Yeah. Yay. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, George. See you then. Thanks, buddy. Ciao, Bye. brother. See ya, George. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to do one email this week. We got a lot of emails about this. This has been in the news quite a bit and everyone was interested to hear us talk about it. This uh, question comes from Trevor from Taiwan, Canada. I didn't realize there was a Taiwan, Canada. Yeah, it's uh, weird. Yeah, it's Taiwan <laughs> slash Canada. So, oh, maybe he's, he's from travels back and forth. Or, yeah. Yeah. yeah, dual citizen, maybe. So he says, I came across this story this evening while reading CBC. I guess that's the Canadian Broadcasting, Canadian Broadcasting Company. Company. Mm-hmm. Yep. A discussion on this might be interesting on multiple levels. If there is a scientifically supported link between this product, that's Johnson & Johnson baby talcum powder, and cancer, then the lawsuit is arguably justifiable. If there is not, then this is pandering to the natural fallacy in that the jurors are responding to big company give innocent people cancer. And then he says you have to read that in a stereotypical caveman voice for full effect. <laughs> However, <laughs> if the talcum powder does have a proven link to cancer, wait, how could it? It's natural, isn't it? The natural fallacy gets turned on its head. I'm not saying I know either way. I'm just reading a lot of reports that say talcum powder gives cancer 12,000 more lawsuits pending. Thanks for the question, Trevor. Basically, the reason we're getting so many questions about this is because a jury came back deciding a lawsuit against Johnson & Johnson awarding a woman who developed ovarian cancer $55 million on the, the idea that talcum powder caused her ovarian cancer. This is also the the second recent uh, major judgment. Uh, earlier in the year, in February, there was a another case where a jury found for the plaintiff and awarded them seventy two million dollars. So that's two big judgments against Johnson and Johnson. Uh, I wrote about it that at the time. Did you know? Read all the studies published on the association between talcum powder and cancer. So here is what the data shows. And we could talk about whether or not we think these judgments were appropriate or not. Talcum powder originally, this is going back a long time ago, contained asbestos. And asbestos does cause cancer. But since the 1970s, talc has been asbestos-free. So yes, there is a link between asbestos and cancer, but that was removed from talc by the 1970s. So now the question is, does the asbestos-free talc have any association with cancer? And as is often the case, the evidence is mixed and ambiguous. Uh, there was a 2003 meta-analysis involving 11,933 subjects and they found that there was a 33% relative risk increase of ovarian cancer for regular genital talc users. Essentially, if you use talcum powder but not on your genitals, there's no association with cancer. So the really the only question is for like women who regularly apply it to their genitals, does that cause 
or increase your risk of ovarian cancer. So this meta-analysis showed a 33% increase for for only for regular. For also, it's like you have to do it on a regular basis for years, um, which is not uncommon. People do like every time they take a shower, they talc up afterwards, right? So that's actually how it's used. So they found a 33% relative risk. Remember, relative risk is not absolute risk. That doesn't mean you have a 33% chance of getting cancer. The baseline risk of ovarian cancer is 0.0121% per year. So therefore, a 33% increased risk is a an increased absolute risk of getting ovarian cancer of 0.004%, uh, which means that assuming that association is real, that translates to four extra cases of ovarian cancer for every 1 million people who regularly use talcum powder on their genitals in the world of cancers that considered very significant not that's background noise i mean that's yeah it's so tiny it's hard to know if it's real or not Mm -hmm. now the authors concluded that while this was a statistical association there was no dose response curve meaning that the risk did not increase with increasing time of exposure like how many years were you doing this that's a big red flag that it's not real because mm-hmm. real risk factors like that generally have a dose response curve. It doesn't prove it's not real, but it's a huge red flag. Well, what you does know, have a dose response curve? Yeah, I mean that's you know that's like one of the things. Like you, you know you, you look for that to to know if it's real. And if there's no dose response curve, generally you consider it not to be real. So there were there have been other studies as well. There was a large 2013 case control study looking at 8,525 cases, 9,859 controls. They did find a 24% again relative risk increase, but again no dose response. And then there was a small 2015 study looking at 2,041 cases with epithelial ovarian cancer and 2,100 age and residence match controls, and found a 33% increase relative risk increase, but also no dose response, although they did find a quote-unquote trend. But a trend is the term that researchers use when there isn't a statistically significant difference, right? So yes, it was increased, but it didn't reach statistically significant. It didn't reach statistical significance, which in my book always means it's not real. You know, just you can't make any statements about that. If it's not even the statistical significance is like the minimum bar for saying, yeah, this is not just, you know, random fluctuation. Again, doesn't mean it's not real, it just means the evidence really doesn't support that it is. So that's it. That's the evidence for regular users of talcum powder uh, on the genitals, you know, women specifically. There is this con- pretty consistent increased association in the literature, but not a dose response curve. And in absolute numbers, it's so tiny that it's hard to, to know if it's real or not, because, you know, even subtle confounding factors could be responsible. Remember, this is all observational data or most of it anyway. And like, for example, uh, for these kinds of studies, all it would take is a little bit of recall bias to explain these effects. Now, recall bias means that if you are a woman and you do come down with ovarian cancer, you may have a tendency to report more talcum powder use than if you didn't come down with ovarian oh. cancer. Does that make sense? Because mm-hmm. that, that's a, the big studies, you know, with lots of patients are just asking women, you know, tell us about your talcum powder use, you know. Uh, so it's based on memory. And that whenever any studies are based on that kind of data, there's recall bias is a potential there. And when you get these tiny effects, 
again, especially without that confirming sort of pattern of a, of a clear dose response curve, it's controversial. Now, of course, that's why Johnson & Johnson says the science has not shown that there's a, a, that there's a, a cause and effect here. It certainly hasn't been proven, but they, and they're not, you know, there's not like smoking, you know, smoking causes lung cancer, right? I mean, the data is pretty much a home run for that kind of data and the tobacco industry just denied it. But this is, this is totally different. This really is, if you're just looking at this in a purely scientific point of view, like just looking at the numbers, these numbers are not compelling. It's certainly you can't rule out that there is a, a correlation, a real correlation, but you know it's it's ambiguous at best. So where does that leave us? So should the these juries have given you know the first woman seventy two million and the second woman fifty five million dollars based upon this data? That's you know that's a very interesting question. Uh, what do you guys think about that? Steve, to me, this is this is a no brainer. I mean, that's they the research has not reached statistical significance. Game over. Bottom line. I mean, four in a million. I mean, it, it looks just like noise. So you can't. This would be a hell of a precedent. Yeah. It's true, but but I understand where Steve's coming from when he says, you know, just because the science hasn't proven it yet. Because a lot of times when we do talk about these types of big industry links, I mean, a great example is. I always recommend Read Tom's River by Dan Fagan. It's, it's a story of like systematic poisoning of the groundwater in Tom's River, New Jersey from this dye factory that just was untouchable. Nobody could get near it. Nobody could do proper testing. They only used their own scientists. They only had, and they had such an army of lawyers. And a lot of times, uncomfortably or unfortunately, legislation is written in such a way that the consumer, the torts aren't powerful like the consumer doesn't have the power it's the company yeah so i, and think, so, I agree yeah, i do think that that's what people re- respond to this as like well companies have all the money they have all the power mm-hmm. so in this situation we're going to favor you know the the plaintiff because they this is their only way you know of getting justice from a big powerful company and but it's the, be, it's the worst situation? example yeah that's the problem right, this yeah. is not the example this is a, a, a very low probability maybe and you're going to award millions of dollars well, they based did. on that they did I mean, they well did. that's bullshit you know, the way to look at this is that um, did the company do anything wrong meaning did they hide research right. yes right mm-hmm. did they yeah. suppress information exactly or is this just that they in good faith they tested their product. The FDA approved it. Everyone in good faith thought that it was completely safe. It turns out there's this tiny risk that didn't emerge until decades later. The thing is, the juries awarded these sums of money as with punitive damages. They wanted to punish the company. As if there was intent or, or, or deception. Yeah. I, and I haven't heard – maybe something came out in trial that we haven't heard that made them feel that way. But – you know, the, the sense I'm getting from reading the accounts of this is just that, no, they just feel sorry for the, the person who had cancer, rightfully so. And big anonymous companies are just easy villains. And, uh, you know, I, I think, the, I, in fact, I would argue, and I have argued, I don't think these, I don't think juries should be deciding these cases. You know, these, these are very technical science-based cases. And, and I don't know. I, just, I think that they often turn on emotion and. Yeah, they're not a. Yeah, I don't know exactly that, that's, that justice is best served. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
by that. I don't know. It's a tough situation. It's a tough situation, yeah. You don't want to crumble the justice system, but I do wish that there were better mechanisms in place in a courtroom where, like, somehow scientific evidence was weighted more heavily than, like, eyewitness testimony. (laughs) Maybe we need something along the lines of a special set of appeals courts that is more... Well, they are going to, yeah. they're going, to, they're going yeah. to appeal. They're going to appeal. But that, yeah, like the science-based appeals court where it's, it's right. just stacked with experts. Like that would be interesting. All right, guys. Well, let's go on to science or fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. You guys ready? Yes. Ready yes. as I was last week. Ready to rebound from last week's sweep. I have to get like a a, a file that has a sound of like a, <laughs> a sweeping, sweeping noise. Yeah. <laughs> You're really going to bring up last week? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go. Item number one. Following up on prior predictions... Astronomers report that direct observations support the existence of a distant ninth planet in our solar system. Item number two, in a recent study, every security software product tested actually lowered the level of security from the level already provided by browsers and operating systems. And item number three, scientists find that subjective feelings of confidence may be rooted in unconscious rigorous statistical analysis. Kara, go first. Ugh. Okay. Um, oh, God. Following up on prior predictions, astronomers report that direct observations support the existence of a distant ninth planet in our solar system. Yeah, so we know about planet – well, it's actually planet X, but it would be the ninth since we ousted Pluto. Direct observations. Yeah. Don't, didn't we already – directly observe it? That was, oh a, that was a mathematical inference. Shit. Okay. I'm going to move on. In a recent study, every security software product tested actually lowered the level of security from the level already provided by browsers and operating systems. I really want this one to be science because that's hilarious. Uh, and then scientists find that subjective feelings of confidence may be rooted in unconscious rigorous statistical analysis. That one's cool. I'm going to say that that the psychology study is science. I'm hoping that it is the case that when we have feelings, like what we call um, instincts, that really hum- human, quote unquote, instincts really are just an amalgamation of a lot of other experiences and that we have some sort of algorithm to to test whether or not we should be more or less confident about something. So I'm going to say that that one is the science um the obvious one would be that the planet X is science and security software is the fiction. So I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say that it is science that every security product actually lowered the level of security only because that would be awesome. And I'm especially because I'm a Mac user and I'm a total snob about it. And I'm going <laughs> to say that it's the fiction that we have any direct observations to support this planet that we're still just understanding it in a mathematical sense. Okay, Jay. Okay, so um, interesting, Kara. Mm. Interesting that you're a, a, a Mac user that hates non-Mac users. <laughs> I don't hate non-Mac She's users. a Mac not. bigot. Yeah, you are. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a new sandwich at McDonald's. Terrible. I, I think this one's the fiction. I think that operating systems and browsers are not providing more security than security software. Because, now here's the problem. The term security software is so unbelievably broad. Yeah, it's true. It, 
saying every security software product. What? I mean, there's even different kinds. You know, we can't. It just seems very loose to me. So that one's the fiction. I believe the other two were definitely not the fiction. Okay, Bob. Well, I'm going to say the uh, start from the bottom. Uh, the subjective feelings of confidence are rigorous statistical. I know people are not um, don't have uh, an intuitive sense of st- statistics, but in some sense, I think you could say that you know people do you know weigh certain options and think about things uh, in a way that could give them some uh, some leg up s- statistically. So that one doesn't sound as as uh, problematic as these other guys. The security software one. I mean, I could I could see that. The one that the word that's getting me here is everyone. I could see some of them making your computer less secure because because some of those some of them actually um, you know they they take over uh, some of the control. They they actually lower the security setting, and that I think that might be one way that that it could be less safe. Uh, so that doesn't surprise. But everyone and the first one there about direct observation of the ninth the ninth planet. How the hell would I miss that? They said that would take years. I mean, they're ta- you know, there's a lot of space out there. Um, I mean, I think they did kind of uh, determine what area of space, but I mean, it's a tiny, you know, non-luminous object. Um, it's not going to be easy to find. And this was only announced a little while ago. All right, I'm going to say the security one. I, I, I really, I heavily doubt every security software product that they tested decreased it. So uh, I'll say that's fiction. Okay, uh, and Evan. <laughs> Bob, what if they only tested four security products? <laughs> bad bad test then. Right. But we don't know. It, you know we don't know. Thousands, we hundreds, will. two. <laughs> right? Which leads, uh, Bob, I think your point about the direct observation of the ninth planet is your first thought was my first thought. Why the hell didn't I hear about that? I, that's... I, I anytime I see planet exoplanet, I you know I tend to be not up on everything, but you know when it comes to our solar system, I do try to pay special close attention. I think I would have seen it. I'm going with that one as the fiction. I'm with Kara. Okay, Whoa. so <gasps> you it's Bob and Jay with the security software, and just, Evan and Kara with the planet. Is that right, Jay? Yes, and uh, so we're split down the middle, and we're going head to head tonight, guys. Okay, oh, but we'll, we'll start. Oh. We'll start with the third one, since you all agree on that one. Confidence scientists Karen. find <laughs> that subjective feelings of confidence may be rooted in an unconscious, rigorous statistical analysis. You all think that one is science. Are you all yes. confident? I'm so Stati- happy. Statistical analysis. Confident? Did you sweep us again? He did not. He did not sweep us. Don't worry. Oh, Bob, don't worry. Bob, Bob, with that confidence. Here's how the movie ends. That uh, one is science. Because Bob read it. Good, good. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you knew that one. So, yeah, so this is interesting. It's interesting. I had to read this carefully. Because you know how sometimes, like as we talk about the uh, the data is one thing, and then they spin it a certain way, and that becomes the story. But okay, I think this one is reasonable as stated. So what the researchers did was they had subjects sort of play a computer game where they listened to clicks, and the and like one series of clicks would either be a little bit faster, a little bit slower than another series of clicks. And they had to say which one was faster of the two. Uh, but they also had to then say how confident were they in that judgment? And, you know, from one to five, one being I'm just guessing and five is I'm absolutely sure. Right. So if you had one that was really fast and the one that was really slow, you'd say five, two that were very close together, you might 
uh, not really be able to separate them at all and mark that a one, and then there was everything in between. And then they had a computer analyze it and, and do the same thing. And and what they found was that the level of confidence in you know which series of clicks was faster actually followed a statistical pattern that it matched the computer's evaluation of statistically uh, like how much difference there was between those clicks so that the people's subjective sense of confidence was fairly well was matching you know essentially a statistical algorithm uh in terms of the difference between these clicks does that make sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so the, so it, it implied that at some subconscious level the brain was actually processing making statistical processing you know information processing and you know the researchers are now interested in trying to find out like well, what part of the brain is that what what actually is it doing okay which one <laughs> should we go to next let's go to number uh, one oh <laughs> i feel marginally better so oh, feel worse following feel up worse. on prior predictions astronomers report that direct observations support the existence of a distant ninth planet in our solar system so maybe the key word here is that it supports the existence doesn't really say that we saw it that we saw the planet. Oh, Just good point. Good we point. We observed something that supports existence. Uh, no, it's good, Jay. It's good for us. By, on the, no, it's bad. It's heaven. bad. Wait, wait, but it, by the same token, if you oh, look at number two, in a recent study, every security software product tested actually lowered the level of security from the level already provided by browsers and operating systems. Evan hit upon the phrase there, every software product tested. Oh, good point, Steve. In that good study. Yeah. Yeah. Would you like to know how many were tested? <gasps> yes. Okay. That'll, that'll uh, 14. 14. So 14. It was a decent, okay, I it was feel a like decent, we've got good odds. Decent sampling. It was a decent eh. sampling. 14 Otherwise, I just, you know, why would they write if they only tested three? Yeah, yeah. Are you ready for the reveal? Oh, God. <laughs> Never. The astronomers reporting direct observations supporting a distant ninth planet in our solar system is... The fiction. Ah, yes. (gasps) Yes. To to the moon, Alex. So that's awesome. Yeah, your instinct about you would have seen it. Suck it. Probably right. Except you know, sometimes I catch things. I just happen to catch things. You know, right at the beginning of the news cycle before you guys do. But uh, and I certainly go for those if I see. Oh, they're going to think they would have seen this one. I definitely would go for it. So yeah, there's no new. But you're right, Bob. It's going to take time. I think before we. You get any direct observations here, but this was based on a real news item. What astronomers did was a computer simulation trying to explain the alleged orbit of Planet Nine, and what they found was that it's pretty unlikely that a, pl- a planet of that size would exist in that orbit. Um, there's a couple of ways, or a few different ways, that the planet could get out there. One is it could have formed there from material that was already out there. You know, it's 10 times farther than the orbit of Pluto on average. It's also in a very elliptical orbit. But they say also it could have formed closer in and been dragged out there by a close approach to another star. And of course, early, early on in the life of our solar system, our star formed in a stellar nursery, right? Like most stars, which means that Early in its life, there was lots of stars very close to us, and that probably knocked a bunch of our planets out of out of the solar system, you know, leaving us only with you know the ones that we have. But it may have also dragged a gas giant out into 
the outer reaches of the solar system, but not quite pulled it away. But since they said there's, you know, the computer simulation showed there's only a 10% chance of that happening. 90% of the time, it'll get ejected from the solar system. But still, that, you know, what if there were 10 planets that happened to? I don't know. Most of them got ejected, and this is just the one that, that managed to stick around. Um, I'm so not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most fascinating news I've heard. Yeah. In the last 80, so this, in the last 80 minutes. This is, uh, <laughs> yes, this is a computer simulation, and it's just, no matter how that planet got out there, it's, it's an unlikely scenario. Um, which makes it seem like there's probably not a lot of planets out there, which does remember part of the, uh, skepticism about this planet was that if they, you know, they, they saw the evidence for it, they happened to be looking in the right direction, then, uh, there must be a lot of them out there, but there probably isn't a lot of them out there. Right, so right. Th- this supports the notion that there probably isn't a lot of them out there, but never. Hmm. Still waiting for hmm. that direct observation to confirm its existence. A couple of years. Yeah. Which means that in a recent study, every security software product tested, all 14 of them, actually lowered the level of security from the level already provided by browsers and operating systems. So that was – and the, the researchers were were uh, surprised by that. This is researchers at Concordia University. Senior editor, um, The senior researcher there was Mohammed Manin. What, what he said was that uh, – you know, he suspected that there might be some issues with these products. Uh, but he was surprised that all 14 of them failed. So the example he gave is that you know, when a browser contacts a website that it asks for the security certificate or the, cert- the certification authority, right? Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't get proper certification authority, then it treats it as an untrusted site. But what a lot of security software does is it's supposed to give you real-time protection from malicious websites. So it is it supersedes the browser's certification authority, you know, verification with its own, essentially telling the browser, don't worry, everything I give you is legitimate. And then it decides whether or not the website is legitimate. So it could actually, you know, bypass the browser's security and allow for malicious you know, software to get through or for websites to be contacted if it makes a mistake. So it actually, by bypassing the built-in security measures, they found that it actually, it adds new vulnerabilities and actually lowers the level of protection and security. So you're saying that the anti-malicious software, software, yeah, the security software, is allowing backdoors and yes. penetration points for for malicious software because it's by, it's pathetic. bypassing it's bypassing the baked in security processes with its own and if and you're better off just having just keeping your browser updated keeping your you know keeping your operating system updated with all the security patches that doesn't mean like you don't run and you know I think it's the real time protection that's the problem and I and I don't use real time protection myself because it slows things down. I don't trust it, but I don't think it means like you shouldn't run like an antivirus scan of your computer. But you know, just don't run anything that sits on top and and bypasses the built in security measures. Now they did say mm. that they contacted the vendors and told them about these issues that they discovered so that they could fix them. But clearly, this if fourteen out of fourteen had these problems, clearly there's a serious issue here. And it's probably just, you know, it's a quality control issue is what it sounds like. Steve, I find it hard to believe, though, if this is true, that 
security software developers don't know this. Here's a quote. Out of the products we analyzed, we found that all of them lower the level of security normally provided by current browsers and often bring serious security vulnerabilities. You know you know what makes me want to slip my wrists? <laughs> <laughs> A I, I read. I read that damn article. I knew they found flaws, but one I did not remember that that one stupid word. Every in my mind, in, in, in my completely fallible piece of crap memory, it was like most of them, not all. But and now, then I was thinking, what Steve doesn't usually pull that, but I was like, no. <laughs> uh. <laughs> all right, I'm done. It's <laughs> uh, <that's> amazing. <laughs> Bob, you know what I find? That's amazing. Thardicism is. is I got over losing science or fiction about four or five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) Jay, Bob is sitting there stewing. You know what makes me slip my wrist? (laughs) Losing science or fiction? No, you didn't listen to me, Jay. It's not losing. I could deal with that after a few hours. But when I actually read the stupid thing, that makes me look for the razor blade because I read that. I read that piece of crap article. I read it. I read every damn word. And still I got it wrong. What is the point? (laughs) All right. That was adorable. Uh, Evan, give us a quote. I have a quote. It was submitted by our friend Craig Good. Thanks, Craig. We appreciate it as always. It is wrong always everywhere and for anyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. And that was said and or written by, by William Kingdon Clifford. Bob, any idea who William Kingdon Clifford was? Did he write the, the Clifford kids books? Uh, no, no, he didn't. Uh, he was a mathematician and philosopher uh, from Britain. He was born in 1845, died in 1879. So he was only 34 years old when he died. But he influenced the non-Euclidean geometry of Bernhard Riemann and wrote On the Space Theory of Matter in 1876. He presented the idea that matter and energy are simply different types of curvature of space, thus foreshadowing Albert Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1876. Wow. Wow. Very, very cool. And if you saw a picture of him, he kind of looks like Leonardo DiCaprio with a big Rasputin beard. That's, that's <laughs> the impression yeah. I got. Yeah. And Evan, you didn't mention that he was born on May the 4th. Oh, my gosh, Steve. I should have. Thank you for picking that up. Thanks for, thanks thanks for picking birthday. up the spare. Happy birthday. <laughs> yeah. I, I like that quote, and uh, I totally agree with it. I think, why believe anything that isn't, you know, that isn't supported by evidence? Why have belief? You're here. I just I don't I don't know. I don't, I'm not down with belief. <laughs> so what's the point of it? What's what's the right. point of it? Right. I'm going to yeah. arbitrarily decide that I'm going to believe this, even though the, you know yeah, I can't just, support it with logic or evidence because it makes know. me feel feel good. I guess. Yeah, it's so just, that's it. Eh, eh. Latest uh, win. All right. Thanks, Evan. You're welcome. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Great episode. And next week we'll be seeing each other at Nexus. See you there. <gasps> We'll yes. See you all there, and then and until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org. 
where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Uh-huh.